Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. A major part of the spirit of the Say It Skillfully podcast is this. You can't help someone you really don't know. You can't know someone without hearing their story, and you won't hear their story if you don't ask. Today, my guest is one of the very best meditation teachers in the United States. He is the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, a nonprofit that fights against stress and trauma in less privileged populations. And he's director of the Center for Resilience, a nonprofit that works to bring the power of meditation to Fortune 100 companies, government, military, and community service organizations. In these roles, he is pretty busy keeping everyone zen. His New York Times bestseller, Strength in Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation, is a foundational text to thousands and has marked him as a leading expert in TM. Since publishing, he's spoken at Google Zeitgeist, Aspen Ideas Festival, Wisdom 2.0, and Summit, spreading his message of inner peace. I am so delighted to welcome Bob Roth to the show. Bob, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Molly, wonderful. And what people can see, we're, this is an audio, but we are looking video. And if you listeners have never seen Molly's smile, it is absolutely luminous. So go ahead. It's <laughs> nice to be here. I just had to say that. I am very grateful for you, my friend. Uh, we want to share our gratitude for another great bright soul, Mark Excelowitz, who is the one who introduced us. And for him, Transcendental Meditation, I know, has been a big game changer. So before we delve into the whole meditation aspect, Bob, um, I am really, really curious how you came to do what you do. So please take listeners through the journey of your life. Born in Washington, D.C., a father who was a, a medical doctor in front lines of World War II. And my mother was a school teacher, inner city school teacher, they used to call it, and um, moved out to San Francisco Bay Area when my father got a job at the VA hospital in San Francisco. Lived in a small little village north of the Golden Gate Bridge called Marin County, which is now famous. Then it was just a rural outpost in 1953. Just a regular kid. Loved baseball, loved sports, you know, suburban kid. Uh, around 1966, 67, there was an awakening that was, and my family just started talking politics all the time. And I'm going to get to the answer here. <laughs> but my family talked politics over the dinner table, we were a Democratic family in an area that was largely Republican. When I, in 1968, I worked for Bobby Kennedy Sr. when he was running for president. I was a senior in high school, and I saw him speak in San Francisco on June 1st, 1968. And I was 17, and I remember looking around the room. It wasn't that I was a Democrat or Republican. It was like 2,000 people, and we were going to change the world. And my heart was as big as an ocean. And then four days later, he was gone. And Molly, that was as, it was the first death. Trauma, I mean, President Kennedy had died, but that was just, I was th 13, and it was surreal. But this was like, 
he was a huge impact in my life. I used to study his speeches when I was 17. So I went to, uh, I had been admitted to University of California at Berkeley in uh, October 1968, and Kennedy died in June. And I resolved during that time that I, during that summer before going to college, that I was going to go to Berkeley, go to law school and become a United States Senator like Bobby Kennedy so I could change the world. And I thought changing the world was by law, laws, changing the laws so that it was equal access. I mean, I, I didn't think anybody should be just handed stuff. People should work for it, but there should be no law that prevented one human being over another. So I was went to Berkeley with that idea. I wasn't a hippie. I wasn't a druggie. I wasn't a crazy rat. I was just a guy who wanted to make a better world. Is this too much detail or is this? Is it... Love it. Okay. So it took about a month at Berkeley in 1968 to realize that politics was not going to heal the soul of the nation. It wasn't going to happen. So I started thinking, maybe not politics, but maybe my mom was a school teacher. How about if I wrote educational curriculum, uh, got a doctorate in that, and then I wanted to help kids, uh, under-resourced, at-risk kids, with give them tools that would help them navigate what was then a very, uh, even then, stressful, traumatic, divisive world. And so I was going to school full-time, there were riots in the streets over the Vietnam War. There was, uh, I was working full-time because my dad was a depression baby who wanted me to have the experience of working even though it was, I was living in the insane asylum of Berkeley. And I was pretty stressed. And I'm also his son, so I'm a skeptic. I love science, I love data. I like big ideas even then, but it had to be rude. I'm a practical sort of guy. And so I was not going to get into anything weird. And meditation those days was certifiably weird. But there was one guy I was working with who I knew who was really down to earth, really a good soul. Just I trusted him. I didn't trust a lot of people then, but he was just a good guy. And he was doing something called transcendental meditation. And I said, that's not a word in my vocabulary. Because I was looking for some something to handle the stress, the trauma. And, and um, he, I said, I don't believe in that stuff. And he said, you don't have to believe in this meditation for it to work. And he held up a pen and he dropped it in his hand, in the other hand. And he said, just like you don't have to believe in gravity for gravity to work, you don't have to believe in transcendental meditation for it to work. And so I said, all right, I'm going to try it. And I'm going to do it for like five minutes. And if I don't like it, I'm never going to do it again. And Molly, my first meditation was so physically relaxing. It wasn't like some epiphany. It was just so physically, profoundly relaxing. I'm not a guy who then or now who can be hypnotized. I tightly wound, smug, smart-ass kid. And it was just extraordinary. It was like something I didn't know. Familiar yet unique. And I remember after my first or second meditation thinking, oh, maybe this is a tool I'm going to teach those kids in those schools. And that was June 28th, 1969. And now it's, uh, whenever it is, November, uh, or whenever you're hearing this, November, December 2023. And now I run a foundation that has brought TM to a million kids for free, the meditation, and veterans, and police, and firefighters, and public school teachers, 
and frontline healthcare workers in, emer in emergency rooms and intensive care units and frontline hospital uh, hospitals right in the toughest high crime communities. And uh, it's a dream come true that I never knew I had a dream for. I never saw any of this coming. So that's it to answer your question, how I ended up here. I wanted, I, meditation for me was, yes, was a way to get rid of my stress, to be able to get through college easier, to be able to learn more and be more resilient and sleep better at night and be happier and all that. But for me, it was a tool to help make a big difference in the world. Wow. I uh, So it, it just sounds like this destiny piece. And I'm wondering when you were growing up as a kid, okay, you had a pretty like normal, as you said, upbringing. And did you, your ability to kind of want to help people, was that so early seeds of that? Was that something that just kind of came to you? Was that something your parents modeled? My parents, my parents. Um, we had this house in, in Marin County. Um, and there's an office of the United Nations in San Francisco. So sometimes the finance minister from Ghana or the this person from uh, you know, China or wherever, Japan, would come to be in meetings at the UN and they were looking for places to stay. So my parents opened up the room in the den, my father's den for them to stay. Uh, um, my dad had a war injury, so they built a small swimming pool in the backyard. So hot days, my mom would have opened it up for children who had disabilities or uh, kids from the uh, what we call Marin City, which like the inner city, to kids to come and swim. So it was always uh, open and multicultural and do good, just share whatever you had, share. And I was brought up that way and to, a little bit to the chagrin of my dad, because as a, as a uh, you know, depression baby, at uh, one time, I, I haven't talked about this, when I was in high school, I, I won some award and I got $100 from the bank and that uh, was honoring me. And I took the $100 and I gave it to the school for kids with disabilities. And uh, my dad said, couldn't have kept half. <laughs> I was, I was my dad. We were close, but I was my dad's. You know how you have some families where they're one's a conservative Republican, the other's a Democrat. So my father was very, you know, protective of the hard work. And I was fortunate. I mean, I, we weren't wealthy, but I was, you know, middle-class. And so I was the opposite of my dad. Yeah. Give it away. <laughs> Bob, did you have siblings? Yes, I have an older sister, Ellen, four years older, and I have two younger brothers, Billy or Bill, who's uh, four years younger than me, and Tom, who's six years younger than me. Wow. So talk about the sibling dynamics. Well, we were far enough apart that we all got along. I think we got along really well. I think, you know, four years is lifetimes at that age. Yeah. And uh, every each one of us was our own person. And to this day, we're quite close. I mean, we live all over the country. Um, one is in Tahoe, Reno area, another's in Santa Fe, another's in Iowa, and I'm in New York. So we're still far apart, but we're we're close. So the dynamics was plenty plenty of room for everybody to be themselves. That's, That's good. 
That's really, I have to tell you, there's four kids. I have a bunch of friends who have four kids and I actually know some who have you on the seven and those larger families, you know, you can kind of feel a sporting team when you have a bigger family. And there's something about, you know, the socialization, I think of, you know, being amongst a lot of other siblings, not really being the only one. Are you an only child? No, I have two sisters and I was talking at length with a dear friend of mine who's one of seven and she was number six. She goes, Molly, I did not expect to be heard. So I was not upset that I wasn't heard. She and she it really helped her. I think she had a a great sense of self and no sort of, well, you know, I was ignored or I was, you know, she just was like, that was just the way it is. And I'm good with it. That's really good. I had a friend who grew up. uh, There were five boys, all big hockey player type boys. And the father wasn't that wealthy. So there was never really I mean, the food was put in bowls farmer style on the dinner table and everybody was hungry. And so there was like this almost, they all loved each other. It was this fight to get the potatoes out. And so to this day, when there's a platter of food set on the table, you know, 60 years later, he's the first one to get the lasagna. <laughs> I have a friend, this exact same story. And it was five boys. And he said, you know, it was like one, two, three. And the minute that dish hit the table, if you weren't in, you weren't going to get your fair share. It wasn't like locusts. The- like locusts. Yeah. It's amazing what, what uh, mild versions of adver- what they call the term adverse childhood experiences, which is when you have a trauma as it, like it can happen to you in the womb, if your mother was an addict or if your mother was abused or if you grew up in poverty or whatever. And those traumas, you have two or three of them and it, it shapes your life going forward. So the, having not enough food like this is not like a trauma of living in poverty, but it still has a, it still shapes. It still shapes. Yeah. I think, I think for sure. Um, I am wondering, did you, with all the other kids, I mean, you seem like you were very mature. You're seeing at least people from around the world. I mean, that's not the most normal thing, you know, heads of state from Ghana. So did you feel like you fit in totally? I mean, I'm just wondering, was anything hard for you? No, no. I think the first 13 years or 14, 13 years of my life, um, it was just a typical California in a sense of, you know, it was an idyllic and, and Marine, I didn't know what humidity was until I was like, I'd never been to the East coast. My mom who grew up in Washington, DC kept saying, we have no humidity. I didn't know what, what it was. I didn't know what cold weather was. I, you know, like snow. So I just said, you know, on weekends, we are summers, you spend the night at, it was sort of like leave it to beaver, although more real because it was multicultural. And then 13, I used to blame it on, you know, my parents for this and that. I think, you know, I just became a 13-year-old kid. And then the trauma of being 13, of changing, and your parents are no good. And then and then the world changed. Then the world really changed. I remember uh, doing homework and listening to a song, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And then Ed Sullivan show when the whole country stopped to watch the Beatles and then all this other music of the 60s, the Rolling Stones and uh, Lou Rawls and Motown and Bob Dylan and Donovan. And, and then it was just like living, you have the puberty, you have the adolescence, but then it was really a sense of uh, trying to keep your head above water and going through all the same stuff of um, girls and this and that and all that. but the whole Kennedy getting killed and, and Martin Luther King getting killed and thinking, where is this going? And, 
it was trying to boil like a boiling cauldron of upheaval and everything. So th that started at 13 or 14 and then full on through the early 70s, just full on. You didn't know what was going. There was no foundations, no no place to stand. I wasn't a a jock. So, you know, I, I didn't play football and I didn't, I wouldn't hold on to, well, I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal or I'm a, I'm a Nixon guy or I'm a, I, I wasn't anything like that. I was sort of wanting to do something for the whole world, but it was still insane. It was really insane. How did your parents or did they attempt to bring you together and try to explain the insanity? No, no, nobody knew what was, nobody knew. Parents, nobody knew what was going on. It was really survival. You just really, when I look back at the time, you just think that's life because you don't know anything. You just think, oh, now, now I've never, I'm 15. I've never experienced, now this is what happens in life. So there wasn't, I wasn't old enough to have ex known something other and then we were just, uh, our generation was just arrogant. Don't trust anyone under thir over 30 and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was real. And it was, and and people were going off to Vietnam and not coming back and watching the news with caskets. And I, it was, it and, and I was in the lottery and my number was 220 and 195 and below went to Vietnam and, um, it was, it was very, nobody knew how to make sense of it. And in that, in that time, then meditation came along. And I think Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the one that the Beatles went and studied with, who himself was, a, if you just think of him as a product of the media, then you, it's almost a caricature, but he was a physicist by training. He was a great scientist of consciousness of the brain. And he, the Beatles happened to study with him and then he became famous, but his focus was always on research and the benefits of meditation and the universality of meditation. And I think, I think what he did and then the other things that came along saved the generation because my generation was just going off the edge with drugs. Started small with marijuana and then just grew and grew and grew and you had Altamont and then you, and I think the whole was about to lose a generation. So meditation came along at the right time. That wow. wasn't to say there wasn't some wackadoodle stuff done in the name of different types of meditation and sex and cults and all sect, S-E-S-S-E-C-T, sect. Um, but it was uh, not just a game changer and I saw it happen. And I became a teacher in 1972. So I have been teaching this for over 50 years. And I've seen the arc of the rejection of meditation 50 plus years ago. And now the increasingly widespread acceptance of meditation, transcendental meditation in particular, but other forms of meditation in hospitals, in businesses, in, in schools, universities. It's become a norm, but that certainly wasn't the case 50 years ago. You were a trailblazer. Before we get to the meditation part, Bob, I want to ask about Berkeley because you hear about this wackadoodle Berkeley. So could you just, since you were there, just share with listeners, you know, what was it like? And then, you know, were you on some academic track? And I can imagine, you know, did you have a, or did your parents have a grand plan for what you were supposed to do after Berkeley? I think parents in those days had no idea what to tell their kids, a lot of kids. 
they, they, there was no sort of guidance. There was a rejection, uh, largely across the board, at least when I was growing up. Uh, Berkeley was, you know, they call it berserkly. And uh, Molly, it was, I mean, in that 68, 69, there was uh, people marching, rioting in the streets. It was uncontrolled, unbridled. There was no rules. There was no laws. There were bonfires in the in the streets. There were uh, uh, rocks through, for you know marches, rocks thrown through store windows. There were civil rights riots. There was, you know, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King gets killed, and then Bobby Kennedy gets killed, and earlier Malcolm X gets killed, and you really don't know. But it was largely a sort of a division between old and young. Today, what we have, I think, is a much more insidious breaking down because it's not just and there was a sense of hopefulness oh well we're going to make a better world we're going to move forward and create a better world it could have been delusional but there was a sort of a hopefulness now i don't i think it's much we don't have to talk about that but i think it's much more insidious now um i i just i i didn't i did not go to vietnam for any number of reasons including health reasons i didn't but I tell people that I survived Berkeley for the first two or three years. A lot of people didn't. They took a lot of drugs. They were um, one block from where I, there was army tanks parked outside my door, the house where I lived. And um, I had a job at a, while well, trying to go to school at a Swenson's ice cream parlor. And I used to bring, you know, the, the, the army tanks were just kids, manned by just kids. 18, 19 years old, I used to bring them all milkshakes. So I was a hopeless, bleeding heart, hopeless, bleeding heart. But it was, it was really disruptive. But in that disruption, I was able to learn to meditate. I was able to make it, make it part of my life. It really uh, put me back on track acad academically because I had some sort of anchoring to myself. But it was, uh, I just, uh, when I think back on it now, with no rules, no, no, no one in charge. I had professors there that if I tried, because they wanted to shut the school down because for the support of the Vietnam War, they wanted to go on strike. So I had professors who told me that if I tried to go to school, to class, the highest grade I would get was a C, highest grade. And if I went on strike, the lowest grade I would get was a B plus. So they just, it was, there was nothing. It was just like, no rules. Now that isn't to say there weren't some people that were in a different universe, but at least for me and the people that I saw and the hundreds of thousands of people in marches. And, and the surreal part was the whole thing is like a bubble, such a bubble in the sense of here's Berkeley. You think the whole world is coming apart at the scenes. And then you hitchhike over to San Francisco and, People are going to work in the financial district and they're taking their kids to school. And it was like, what? We're not taking over the world? It was just, it was crazy. Did you have a tight group of college friends? Who did you, did you have meditating buddies? Yeah, I ended up ha having them, you know, um, it take, take, took some time. I sort of uh, fell away from some of my friends that I went from high school to Berkeley as you naturally grow. But yeah, I, I had some good close friends who we shared values. 
And my shared value was, as I said, I didn't take drugs. I, I uh, wasn't a political radical. I didn't want to join some weird religious group. I just wanted to be myself and do something that could make a better world. Well, this idea of wanting to be yourself, though, that's kind of advanced, okay? Just to th- that thinking of it. And I I think of yeah. yoga as getting to know myself or who I really am. I think meditation is the revealing of oneself to oneself. And so um, career-wise, when you went through this, you knew you were going to, you were doing this. You're like, I'm going to be a, a, a meditation teacher. No. How did that happen? It just grew into it. I started meditating and then I had a chance to become a teacher and my dad, who was a doctor, you know, and I'm the oldest son, said, now you're going to do this as an avocation, aren't you? And you're going to, you know, go to law school at that point. And I didn't think otherwise that I wouldn't. And <clears throat> I love the science of meditation. I like the love the health benefits at that time. It was just, it was not just, I didn't want to just do the same old, same old, same old. And there was something cutting edge and fresh and, and challenging about, um, about sort of like at one point, psychology, psychiatry became a new profession. You know, there was a lot of rejection of it. And then, and then it became an accepted uh, field of investigation and application. And I sort of likened that it will meditate even way back then. I thought, no, at least transcendental meditation is not wackadoodle. It's a real deal. It's something that is profound health benefits. And so I worked to help set up forums for conferences with top medical researchers exploring the uh, principles and benefits of meditation. I worked it, I brought it to General Motors and also Apple Computer and also these tough schools in South San Francisco. And it just got to be so satisfying and so like I really felt that I was, you know, um, at a cutting edge of something that I didn't mind if some people sort of frowned on it, that, that's fine. But that's all changed. And these days, the work that I'm doing with the David Lynch Foundation is we're working to get it covered by Medicare and Blue Cross Blue Shield and part of the healthcare system. Yeah. So this is a great time for folks who, you know, and people think about meditation, you know, they're runners or they're gardeners, they get in a meditative state. Could So, you know, with all that, you know, would you give us a little of a, you know, 101 lesson on it and some of the different types? Because I just think it would be really informing for folks. Yeah. There's a lot of people hear the word meditation and <clears throat> it's just a confusing word. They don't know what it means. Is it there's mindfulness meditation, there's transcendental meditation, there is walking meditation, there's music, you know, every meditation, Molly, just means thinking, but there are different types of thinking. So there's a mindfulness meditation where you're sort of watching your thoughts and being aware of what you're thinking. There is a concentration form of meditation where you're trying to control the mind. And transcendental meditation, transcend just means to settle down, to settle down to the deepest, quietest level of your thinking mind. And all of those, it turns out, they're different and they have different brainwave signatures and they have different outcomes. So here's a very simple analogy to understand that question. I like to use the cross-section of an ocean where you have choppy waves on the surface and then at the depth 
the ocean is pretty darn silent. And we can use that analogy for the mind. Surface of our mind is the like the choppy waves, the active thinking mind. Some people call it the monkey mind. I like to call it the gotta, 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 gotta mind. I gotta do this and I gotta do that. And I gotta call him and I gotta call her. I gotta make a list. Then I gotta find the list. Then I gotta make a new list. And I gotta slow down and I gotta get going and I gotta I gotta get to sleep and I gotta get up. And it all the God is, it gives rise to a natural human desire to say, whew, I'd like some inner calm, some inner equanimity, some inner ease, some inner peace, some inner clarity, some inner creativity, some inner connectedness to myself. And the operative word there is inner. And the question is, is there such a thing as an inner? And if so, how do we get there? And so that's entered the realm of meditation. And it, there's a gazillion different meditation brands out there, but it turns out there's three basic types of meditation. One is called focus. Is this too much detail or is this it's just okay? fabulous? Okay. One is called focused attention. Focused attention is, as I said, is a concentration form of meditation. So it's Zen meditation or a certain. And the analogy going back to the ocean is, Okay, if you want to have a calm ocean, what disrupts a calm ocean? Waves. So if you could stop all the waves on the surface of the ocean, you'd have a calm ocean. If you want to have a calm mind, what disrupts a calm mind? Thoughts. If you could stop all the thoughts on the surface of your mind, you'd have a calm mind. When you do that kind of meditation, it creates something called gamma brain waves. Mm. Gamma brain waves are 20 to 50 cycles per second. That's when you're really working hard. So that's difficult type of meditation, but that's people who say, I could never meditate. I could never clear my mind of thoughts are thinking about focused attention. That's what they're focusing your attention. So the second of three is called open monitoring. Open monitoring says thoughts are not necessarily the disruptor of calm but the content of thoughts could be the disruptor of calm. So I could have a thought about a guy named Joe, and if I don't really know anybody named Joe, I'm, I'm fine. But if I have a thought about a guy named Joe, and 10 years ago, Joe done me wrong, I think about Joe, and I get upset, or I get angry, or I get annoyed, so focused, I mean, excuse me, open monitoring teaches me to dispassionately observe my thoughts, content of my thoughts, my moods, my feelings. Be in the present. Don't be 10 years ago when Joe done that to you. Don't worry about Joe coming in two weeks. Be in the present. An aspirational thing to do, but when you got millions of things going on all the time, but and when I do that kind of meditation, it creates something called theta brainwaves. And theta brainwaves are four to eight cycles per second, and that's when you're thinking about something deeply. Still with me? With you, love it. Okay. So, third, now these two approaches to meditation are called, tech in the, in the lingo, cognitive approaches to meditation. That pertains to the waves on the surface my thoughts, my moods, my feelings. Yeah. The third type of meditation is called self-transcending. 
And that's transcendental meditation. And self-transcending recognizes the ocean has waves on the surface, but that there's a vertical dimension to the ocean. And there's active on the surface, quiet at its depth. The mind, from the perspective of TM, has thoughts and all the moods and feelings on the surface, but we're not restricted to that. The mind also has a vertical dimension. There's deeper levels of the mind, quieter levels of the mind. And the hypothesis is deep within every human being, you, me, everyone listening, every one of us, right now, there's a level where your mind is already settled and peaceful and calm and wide awake. We've lost access to it. And when I experience that during transcendental meditation, then I get a different brainwave signature. It's called alpha one, eight to 10 cycles per second. It's a state where my brain and my mind, Molly, are deeply settled and awake. And there's a hormone called uh, cortisol, which is a stress hormone, very destructive. If you get a good night's sleep, cortisol, cortisol levels will drop 10%. 20 minutes of TM, they drop 40%. So it gives the body deep rest and is very healing. And I am now done talking. <laughs> I love it. I appreciate that overview because I think a lot of folks, you know, hear that word and they don't really have a way to unpack it. So thank you for that. I have a question because I did a certification in something called a yoga nidra meditation. So it's not a yoga, but it strikes me. I'm not sure. I don't know if, if you, how were that's categorized? Um, Describe what you do. So it's, 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 um, it's got a series of activities it starts with like a body scan. And basically the only thing that stays awake is the audio channel. You put your entire body to rest. And it's that feeling if you, it's when you, you would know these brain waves, but there's a brain wave state when you're going down where your body's almost frozen. Like you could hear the door open, but you can't move, you know, like you're, so you can hear it, but you're just kind of, you can't, you can't move your body. I don't remember if that was a Delta or, or what level of it was, but it's training your body to stay at that state. And that's at state, you're also very receptive to learning. So they've had these Indian studies show that a young person literally learned a language like in their sleep overnight type of thing. Um, and it, it is, they have the five distinct pieces. There's a body scan. It's about contrasts of feeling heavy and light or hot and cold. There's certain, um, you just listen, you keep your audio channel going and it can be like 45 to 50 minutes. Um, I can send you a book on it because I'm curious yeah. about it. But it was really for I did it once I actually kind of to your point, I did it. Like I was like, and I felt like a million bucks. I'm like, that was the best 45 minutes of my life. I was just so rested, so alert, you know. And it but it takes, you know, so I love to ask you about the practice of it. And, you know, people are always like, did I do it right? You know, did I do it right? Am I doing it right? And so just talk to coach us through, you know, for folks who want to get into it maybe some of the things to not stress out about or how you might even get into it. Yeah, good. So people sometimes say to me, what do you mean quieter levels of the mind? You know, when I talked about the cross-section of the ocean and allows you to experience quiet, what does that mean, quieter levels of the mind? And I said, you have intuition. They said, yeah. You know, someone comes to you and they say, oh, I think you should buy this or invest in that or meet this person or marry that, whatever. And it makes perfectly logical sense on the surface. And you think, yeah, maybe I will rent that apartment. But then you go home and you think about it quietly and you go, 
uh, I don't think so. And someone says, why? And you say, it doesn't feel right. It's a quieter level of the mind, just feeling. It doesn't feel right. Well, the hypothesis, hypothesis, Molly, is that far, far deeper than that, deep within everyone, is a level where your mind is already settled, quiet, peaceful, as I said, wide awake. And then when I experience that, there's a completely unique brainwave signature. And uh, can you hear all that sirens out there? No, I don't hear a thing. Uh, um, the national bird of New York City, sirens race. <laughs> um, just it, it, it complete unique constellation. Now, how we access that during transcendental meditation, and then I'll talk about how it differs. Um, effortlessly. No effort, you can't make any forcing. It's not a cognitive process. It's not keeping your awareness on your breathing or on your or on thoughts or this or that. It's like a transcendent, like a flow state almost. You know, like a they call it the zone or a flow state where it's just so here I'll give you an example of how it would work. You're sitting in a room and you're listening to just terrible music. And in the other room, some of the most exquisite music you've ever heard in your life comes on. Where's your attention go? Turn, yeah, turn this awful music up, turn it off, turn that up. Or you have two books to read and one book is so bad, you can't read a word and the other book is so great, hours could go by. So that principle there, it's the natural tendency of your mind, given the opportunity, will always naturally be drawn to something more satisfying without any effort, inside, deep inside, very nice place. That's the hypothesis. You don't have to believe in it. You don't have to visualize it. Just the hypothesis. You have it deep within. And all we do with transcendental meditation, sort of like teaching a child how to dive. You say they're standing by to the side of the pool and you say, take the correct angle and then gravity takes over. No effort. So in transcendental meditation, the attention is drawn to something more satisfying out through the senses. You close your eyes, you learn, you set up the conditions, give the attention of your mind an inward direction. And without thinking about it, without visualizing it, without manipulating anything, your active thinking mind just gently is drawn inward. A 10-year-old child can learn how to do this within a an hour, it takes about an hour a day over four consecutive days from a certified teacher. This is not something you learn out of a book. Okay. This is something that you learn individually and you get what's called a mantra. And a mantra in TM is a word or a sound, a couple syllables that has no have no meaning and that just lets a facilitator, a catalyst for that inward dive. God, you told me to it. talk... I huh? want it. I want some. I want some. Okay. Where so, you, no, where do you live? Where do you live? I'm in Cary, North Carolina. I used to be in the city. I was just up, I was just there, but I'm going to be back up in the city next month. But I I have to do this. I have to. Where what's the big city, biggest city in Cary next in Cary? Oh, Raleigh. Raleigh area. Yeah, well, you let me know, but there's TM teachers in Raleigh. There's TM teachers here. You want to get a, I if you're interested, I would help you yeah, find we'll, and we'll any, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about the offline. So I am. Um, so for listeners, this is not intended to be an advertisement for it, but I I am like I'm just I'm sold already. I do want to ask you about the folks who I could imagine um, the pushback. You know, it's kind of wacky or what have you. And 
Um, I'm just wondering how you deal with that and along your own journey. And it's a little bit like when I was a yoga teacher, you kind of want to convince everyone to do yoga. And then you realize that, you know, it's my job is not to convince you to do yoga. If, if that is something that is of appeal to you, I'm happy to be part of guiding you, but it's, I'm not there to convince. So I'm a, I'm a little bit curious on your own. I mean, exact same way, exact same way, hundred percent, exact same way. If you're interested, I'm happy to tell you. And I want to, as a teacher, do the best job I can to be able to explain it as simply as possible. Then it's completely your call. And I'm happy if you decide you don't want to do it, that's fine. You follow your your path. But if this is something that resonates with you and at this time in your life, it sounds like something that you would like to give it a try, then I'm happy to help facilitate that for you. And these days, it takes almost no time at all. There's Most people aren't skeptical that TM works. They're, the biggest skepticism, they just don't think they could do it. You know, either they don't have the time or my mind is just too busy. I yeah. could, I've tried meditation. I can't clear my mind of thoughts or it's, I can do it, but just once every 10 times. And, and so I say, as far as the time goes, I say there's 1,440 minutes in a day. If we don't have a couple of minutes in the morning and a couple of minutes in the afternoon to tune up the brain, then we may need to reprioritize because stress is, I, I think it's the plague of the, it's the plague, you know, it's, it's a pandemic, what it's doing to our children, what it's doing to ourselves. So um, it, it, the timing, I, I, and as far as not being able to do it, I say I've taught maybe 10,000 people over 50 years. And this is going to sound completely ludicrous. Not one person has been unable to do it because there's no learned, we're, we're hardwired for it. People know how to breathe because we're hardwired for it. They know how to you know, digest food. We're hardwired for it. We set up the conditions and the ability for the mind to be drawn inward. People who couldn't do it would be if you have... Um, Obviously, if you have Alzheimer's, if you can't remember, but skeptics, I tell people, if you're skeptic, you're great. Or if you have ADD or ADHD, this is an ADD dream dream come true because you don't have to concentrate. You're not trying to stop the waves. You're just settling down to calmer levels within. I mean, I'm telling you, listeners are just, they all want in. Bob, tell us about your own, your own practice. How do you, how do you avail yourself of this each day? I wake up in the morning. I go to bed early. As I get older, I go to bed early. I love going. In New York City, I like to say nothing really great happens after eight o'clock at night. <laughs> I mean, if I want to get stuff done, I'm a write. I like to write. I like to play. So I go to bed early and I get up early, five, four thirty-five, and I meditate first thing. And then I write and I plan for the day and I run the foundation. And it's so quiet in New York. There's not nobody doing much until about 6.30 or 7, so I get two and a half hours of something nice. And I meditate in the afternoon. I, I put it into my, into my because I have a busy day. I run this foundation and we're in 35 countries and there's a million things to do. But I, um, I, uh, the night before, I look and I say, okay, where am I going to find time? Because the morning when I just do, I just get up 25 minutes earlier, it's better than sleep. 
So I don't mind if I have to set an alarm, it's better than sleep because it's deeper than sleep and the research shows it's more rejuvenating. In the afternoon, I have to look at my calendar the night before and say, oh, so here I have an opening at 3.15, so I could do it then. Well, I better do it before uh, this time because I'm going to be doing an interview with Molly, So, I, or I'm going to do it, I have a barbecue with some friends, so I'm going to do it when I get back. So I, that's how I do it, and I've been doing it for so many years, it's just part of my life. So how uh, long, what's the duration of your meditation? 20 minutes, 20 minutes, morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And so the teaching part of it, I, I've just noticed from the moment you opened your mouth, you have a, a great gift. You're very inviting. You're very clear. You you create analogies or metaphors that make things easy to for people to grasp. Were you always like that? Where did you learn that? I'll tell you a funny story. I, I When I was in high school, I took an elective uh, journalism class in my junior year. People say, what was the most important class you ever took? My, I took a journalism class in my junior year. And they say, why? I said, in, if you take English literature or something, you have to read 400 pages to find out who did what to whom. In journalism, it's in the first sentence. I, I just love that fact that it just it just like what's the most important thing that you want to convey, and then from that you can elaborate. And what's the most? And so I think that trained me a journalism background to sort of speak or think and speak. You know, some people say you if you go to law school you think like a lawyer. Or you, you and I think journalism really taught me how to. What's the most important point? And then elaborate on it. And what's the most important? And then elaborate on it. And I love that. And so my mind just thinks that way. And I I also been teaching for a very long time. And so what do they say? 10,000 hours. In my case, 10 million hours. <laughs> but I love it. I mean, talking with you, it's first of all, it's wonderful to talk to you. Your questions are great. But you know, it's it's always fresh. If a person is genuinely interested, you're just talking, it's like you're talking for the first time. That's but journalism, thinking like just organizing. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's just like cut to it. Yeah, well, it's great. And you do that, but without any like, it's not like a cut to the chase feeling. Do you know what I'm saying? No, it's no. very no. inviting. So I'm a feature writer. Yeah. <laughs> So, I'm a feature writer rather than a feature journalist rather than a. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talk about what writing is for you. I, <coughs> writing is that I love communicate. <coughs> I love speaking, communicating. Um, writing is when I get it's like a muscle. They say I'm I'm a I'm an okay writer. I'm a, write like a journalist actually. Feature writer. I, I like stories. I like to keep it moving. I have a relatively short attention. I mean, I can go deep on stuff, but in general, short attention span. So as I was writing, if I found I was getting not interested in what I was writing about, then I better move things along because the right because the reader is going to be going nuts. And I love getting into this cycle where I'm like, I'm writing a lot, and then it's just a I start thinking in the written word rather than thinking in the spoken word i start thinking in a written word and there's a flow to that and it's different 
than thinking and the speaking word. It's a, it's it's different, but uh, I love it. I I again I like to write in ways that are simple and clear and uh, accessible to people. I don't want anybody to feel. I don't want anybody to feel um, other than, you know, if, if this is how I feel about something, I want to do the best I can to express how I'm feeling about it. And where where's the, your idea base for your, when you write? Well, I wrote about meditation. So the idea base is my experience is teaching mm -hmm. and my, and the uh, experiences of other people. Um, I've written books in the past, ghost-written books on third-party politics, for example. Oh. And I've helped people write books on healthcare. Because I just, when I was in my muscle writing time, you know, my writing muscle time, uh, I'm not so much of a fiction writer. I, I like to, um, there's people who are incredibly creative at that, make up worlds. I'm having enough trouble figuring out this world. <laughs> so, um <laughs> I, I sort of keep it keep it that way. Um, you feel it feels like you're just kind of living this dream of your life and you're working very hard at it. And I'm just wondering aspirationally, are there dreams you have? Like what what's out there in your immediate or even more distant future of the mountains that you're climbing? The uh, culmination of all the work that I've been doing on this over 50 years is to is to get the independent research done at top universities and um, have TM and down the road, other evidence-based integrative practices incorporated into our healthcare system. There's no reason why only drugs, only medicines or surgeries, or in some cases, talk therapies are reimbursable, but not tools that are actually more effective for reducing anxiety or even as effective for reducing anxiety or high blood pressure or depression or insomnia, but they're not part of the pharmaceutical industry. So we're, we're right now funding a, um, in the, uh, not funding, there's a phase three clinical trial going on at six major medical schools uh, with hundreds and hundreds of veterans and police and firefighters on the effects of transcendental meditation on post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorder, insomnia, and suicidality. Huge problem with suicidality and TM has been very, very effective in smaller studies for preventing suicide. So that study will be used, the results of that study will be used to secure funding for the 1 million veterans and hopefully their families who suffer from PTSD. And um, there's 15 million Americans who suffer from PTSD. So the mountaintop, I'm getting to the towards the towards the top is the research that will secure that. Um, I, I love what I do. And that would be a, lo a lovely thing to leave, you know, to yeah. leave. Yeah, it's more more than just lovely. That's um, that's super meaningful, and that is making our world a better place. Um, time has been flying, so I will take us to a little wrap here. And I 
as you look at um, all you've done, I, I, I see the big mountain ahead and I'm cheering for you in any way I can help you. I would be happy to. Um, biggest accomplishment or most proud accomplishment to date? That uh, foundation, David Lynch Foundation, when we launched it, the filmmaker David Lynch and myself launched it 18 years ago, people said, oh, a, a nonprofit organization based on bringing uh, meditation <clears throat> for free to at-risk populations, you won't last a year. And it's 18 years. And, you know, we brought it to a million people. And that's just the first step. I would like 18 years to a million people. In five years, I'd like to bring it to 10 million people and beyond. So I would say that is very satisfying. Hard work from a lot of people and passionate work and compassionate work for a lot of people. Nice. Um, uh, Bob, if you had three words or three phrases that would best capture the essence of you, what would those be? Um, there's a, a, I told you Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was this, the physicist meditation teacher. He was one time asked by a reporter, um, what's the keys to success? If you have a good idea, what's the keys to success? And he said two things. So here's my two words, conviction and persistence. And now I'll elaborate. Conviction for me is a vertical thing. I believe deeply in something. I believe deeply in the foundation. I believe deeply in this relationship I have with the person. I believe deeply in getting, but it's a conviction, deep. But you can't have just a conviction at once that you have to have that conviction for that relationship for the, over time. And that's persistence. That's mm -hmm. a horizontal. So over time, you stay, you believe in it, you stay with it. So I would say my two words are conviction and persistence. Oh my God, you personify that. It is so, so fabulous. Um, some, you know, you've, you've shared a lot. I would, I'm curious about a top takeaway. One, one top takeaway of your own as you've listened to yourself, is there a top takeaway? And then I'll ask you for one for our audience. Say that again, what you want. A top takeaway as you've thought, if you, as you shared, you've shared a lot about your own past. I'm just wondering if there's anything that's come to you about your own story that you've shared. I just I have a continuum of always doing the best I can to be true to myself. Just, I just want to like sprinkle you everywhere. Um, I think that would have to be our top takeaway for our listeners as well. Um, I'll just wrap. What was it like for you to share a bit of your journey with us today? Okay. So you have to take this with no defensiveness, no, not defensive. No, I have enjoyed this interview with you maybe the most of any interview I've ever done, 50 years. Just take that. Thank you, my friend. I am in awe. I am in awe of you. I'm inspired by you. I am smiley about you. And I am very, very grateful that we've had this time. I'm. Um, you're very generous in what you shared. I know listeners around the world are moved. And I'm going to follow up with you on TM for Molly, because I think that's absolutely something that is um, going to help me get to know me and be a better me. 
Um, and so for now, I'm just going to thank you, Bob, for being part of the solution in our world. I think um, you're really just uh, personifying that we can all make a difference um, and that you can dare to care and, and dare to be remarkable. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you're really helping all of us be our our truest selves to be safe, seen, and heard. And um, and I thank you for that, my friend. Thank you for allowing me to be safe, seen, and heard. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, my God, folks, it doesn't get any better. Okay, my uh, thought for the week, and it gets to the mind-body connection, and it's from Naomi Judd. Your body hears everything your mind says. And my gratitude also to the amazing folks who make this show possible, the awesome crew at Voice America and the talented Eric Patton, who does the driving force of all of our Say It Skillfully site and social media. And that is a wrap, folks. I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Bob's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that those that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in our lives. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.